Welcome to Run This World. My name is Nicole DeBoon. I'm a former pro athlete turned entrepreneur. Each week, I'll bring you insights and inspiration from some of the world's greatest visionaries who will help you run your world in ways that you didn't even realize were possible. Thank you for spending some time with me today. Now let's get this workout started. Hey everyone, it's me. I'm here for another round, another awesome conversation, and some really insane stories to share with you before we even get to the main event today. See, today you're going to be hearing from my friend, Elizabeth Carr. She's an incredible woman who has her own podcast, which I encourage you to check out. And it's fittingly called The First because she was the very first in vitro baby, IVF baby in the United States back in 38 years ago. I should know the date. It's on her website, um, which we're going to share in the show notes because you all need to go check it out. She's a super cool chick. And I am going to tell you a little bit more about her right after I tell you about what the hell whirlwind has been going on in my own life. I just feel like I'm at this place where I had to recently completely give up control. I had to just sort of turn in, to use maybe a surfing metaphor, I had to kind of turn into the wave and just let it ride. Because I realized at some point along the way here that I really control just about nothing. I can throw stuff out into the world, but I cannot control the direction it's going to take. So I have to tell you a little story. Um, A week and a half ago, we are talking Sunday of a week and a half ago. Actually, I'm going to go back one day before that. Saturday. Saturday night. It was August 15th. I was sitting there looking at the Skirt Sports website, looking at our inventory and what I had planned and hoped, and actually I did a really damn good job controlling this, is that Sunday the 16th would be our last day of doing business. And what that meant was that whether I found a new buyer or not, at some point I just needed to stop selling stuff. And so I decided we were going to aim for Sunday the 16th to be our last day of doing business. I will tell you that in 15 years of running skirt sports, I was never once right on inventory. I never once could have predicted a date or a number or anything like that. You're always wrong. That's the hardest thing about inventory or being in any consumer goods business where you have to carry stuff on shelves. You're always wrong. You're just trying not to be too wrong, right? So on Saturday, August 15th at about 10 p.m., I kept hitting refresh. We had 28 units left. And I have to tell you, just to give you a little frame of reference, 28 units, we were selling them for just about nothing. I mean, that was probably less than $200 of sales by the very end there. When we started our finish line sale on May 1st, we had $700,000 of inventory that we needed to move. 
we were down to the last $200. And so I knew on Saturday night that Sunday was going to be the last day. I just knew it. And all Sunday morning, I just had this weird vibration of energy that was just sort of like Tim and Wilder didn't even know what to do with me. And I was sort of wandering around. I kept hitting refresh. <laughs> she was seeing me as like a wild animal. It's like, oh my gosh, it's all going to go. And you will die because the very last style that we had left was the very farthest style than you could have imagined from the product that started Skirt Sports, which was our amazing diverse range of fitness and running skirts, right? But we had dabbled in so many things. And what we had left was black, small, one-piece swimsuits with with adjustable straps. (laughs) Yes. And then I was sort of laughing because I was looking at the photo of winning Ironman Wisconsin in 2004 in a little race belt skirt. But what was I wearing underneath that skirt? I had on a one-piece swimsuit. And I was like, oh my God, this is so fitting. So at 11 a.m. on Sunday, August 16th, we sold our very last unit. It happened. And I breathed. And then I quickly packed up a whole bunch of stuff and our family got in the car to drive to Steamboat for a little getaway because I was successful in doing the hardest part of life as an entrepreneur, ending, shutting down a business. And especially in a way that I I really didn't necessarily want to. But it was okay. You know, I was sort of, I had done my job here and on the flip side, I was working on something that could potentially be very exciting, which was the um, concept of new ownership. More on that later or very soon. (laughs) So we get in the car and our family starts driving to Steamboat and it's about noon on Sunday the 16th. There's a section where you lose any kind of like cell reception for about 45 minutes. Two hours into the drive at two o'clock, we listened to a message right before we lost reception and it was our realtor in Steamboat. Yes, I'm letting you into a little something here. Tim and I have decided that it's time when we start a new chapter in life here to get a truly fresh start and move. And we had fallen in love with Steamboat Springs, which is a little town in the mountains of Colorado many years ago, many, many years ago, lots of fun and history there. And it had re-entered, you know, our, our, the periphery of our minds and we started to explore it more. And a few weeks ago we went and we saw some homes and we fell in love with one home and we put an offer on it. And it was kind of a weird situation. There was another offer and it was a competing thing and it kind of started escalating. And we just decided it was a sign that we should stop, that I had things I still needed to finish and we should back off. Well, at two o'clock, as we were driving into Steamboat that day, our realtor left us a message and told us that the other buyer had pulled out and that our backup offer was now in play that we were officially under contract on a home in Steamboat Springs. And so friends, I tell you this because life changes 
fast when you decide it's time to change. I went from ending a huge, big chapter of my life, selling the symbolically and literally selling the very last unit of product and three hours later being under contract on a home to prepare me for the next chapter of my life in Steamboat Springs. Oh my gosh, what a freaking whirlwind. I will tell you that depending on when you listen to this, you may have an opportunity to catch the first part of the next chapter live on Wednesday, August 26th on the Skirt Sports Instagram live feed. I will be making a huge announcement at 5 p.m. Mountain Time. So if we actually get this podcast up in time and you hear it before then, scramble over on your phone and and tune in because the next chapter of the thing I just ended may not actually be an ending after all, but more of a relay transition zone. So much happening so fast. I'm just going with it. I am just literally turning back into the wave every time I want to sort of start riding it in. It gives me a little nudge and uh, I'm just listening to that. So right now, everybody, I'm going to tell you that it's time to turn in and it's time to embrace transition, whether it's brought upon you or whether you are bringing it upon yourself because you know it is time. Whew. So now I'm going to segue back to today's guest because today's episode, it really is about transitions. Um, Elizabeth Carr is, like I mentioned earlier, an old friend now. I met her actually through the world of running, but right now she's at a point of reinventing herself and going through another career transition. So a little background on her. She's really cool. If you Google her, she's got her own Wikipedia page because she is freaking famous for being first. And you know what comes with being first? Pressure to living up to a standard of perfection. The title of this episode. So Elizabeth, um, we get, we get deep. We have fun today. She's a great interview because she just kind of flows with her stories, but her career started at the Boston Globe many years ago, 15 years ago, Um, and she went from there to Runner's World, where she was not an elite runner, but she was a passionate runner and uh, believes in the power of moving her body. And at Runner's World, she had the opportunity to literally start a brand new division focused on women. It was called Zell. Z-E-L-L-E, some of you will remember it. And when she started, she did the smart thing and found a bunch of women influencers in running and asked some of us to write for Zell. So I was one of the women who contributed quite a bit of fun and knowledge and uh, and opinions <laughs> to the Zell site. Um, that actually was sort of shut down. And as, as runner's world was restructuring, she moved on to work in the nonprofit, uh, industry, but COVID played a big part in shutting down her efforts there. So she finds herself most recently without a structured career path. And it's really fun to hear her thoughts on how she figured out 
what her next step might be. Um, and she's still in it, which is really cool. I think it's fun to talk to people when they're in the process as well. But what she has done is listen to her heart and decided that she still she has a huge passion for where she came from, which is being a resource in the fertility world and helping people who are trying to navigate a very confusing, expensive, intimidating world. Um, she's awesome. We have a great conversation. You're going to love it. And I'm going to encourage you again right now, if you haven't already, to check out her podcast called Fittingly The First. All right. It's time to bring Elizabeth Carr on the show. Hello, hello. Hello. Oh my gosh. You're like a breath of fresh air right now. So (laughs) good to see you. It's been a million years. I, I was trying to figure out when the last time I saw you was, and I think you're right. I think it literally has been a million years. <laughs> I mean, it was like at a marathon or something, like Boston or something. I think you're probably right. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, it's crazy because in those million years, your world has like zigged, zagged, and gone crazy, you know, completely coming out the other side. I was going to say full circle, but I, I wouldn't call it full circle. No, like you've gone, you've taken like a whole different geometric shape here. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I know it's, and it's so funny because it's, it's just like running, right? You just sometimes feel like, you know what? I'm just going to pop over here and find out what this trail is all about. Uh, I love that outlook. Why can't we do that more often? I know. For just all our stop. big decisions. Yeah. Just stop and be like, this looks like an interesting thing. Let's go check it out. What's the worst <laughs> that can happen? You I mean, the worst why? that can happen is like you get eaten by a bear or something. I don't know. Yeah. And that's a pretty bad thing, but the risk is pretty low, right? Yeah, exactly. But I know why we don't do that because over the years in our lives, we develop all of these dangling responsibilities and expectations and things like children and relationships and um, money and things that we think we, we need to make sure, you know, we handle first. And sometimes I question if, if uh, those actually hamper our decision-making. Yeah. I I mean, I think that's the, that's one of the reasons I keep coming back to running is because it forces me to change my mind about so much stuff on a daily basis. Um, so I just keep, you know, keep going. You just got to keep going. You know, maybe we should start with running because that's how you and I came together. You were like a, a managing editor or something at, um, the new like women's runners world site, which was called Zell, right? Didn't you basically create that whole division? Yeah. So essentially what happened was I was at the Boston Globe for, oh gosh, since I was like 18 years old and I was the health reporter and wellness reporter there. And, um, runner's world had a job opening to create this new women's brand. And it was like my dream gig. I was like, I'm a runner. This is totally up my alley. I have all the skills. So I jumped at the chance and they hired me and basically they were like, we don't exactly know what we want this women's brand to be, but we know that we need to talk to this giant audience of women who generally speaking, like run a ton, but don't view themselves as runners per se. Um, and don't think that they're like necessarily athletes, even though any day of the week, any one of our readers could have kicked my butt. <laughs> um, and so we built this digital product 
And the dirty little secret that nobody knew but me was that it was really about life through the lens of running, right? It wasn't running through the lens of life. It was life through running. Um, And I think that's why we were successful. Um, that's brilliant because I was actually actively involved. Like I, you recruited me to help write articles and I did some good writing for that publication. Um, and I didn't even know that that was the sinister core, you know, reason for being, um, which is actually brilliant. Truly. You know, I think often the best products and services and, and ideas are not because they're completely original, but it's by taking another idea and doing it a different way and shifting the perspective and boom, you nailed it. Yeah, it was really, really fun. And it was just such a beautiful community. And, you know, nobody really knew how we were going to do or how well we were going to do. And then in the first month out, we hit 5 million page views and people were like, what? (laughs) That's just so insane. And what it says to me is that Women, women gravitate to authentic um, places for them to congregate, feel safe, and feel supported. And there's still, even today, a lack of those kinds of resources. And I mean, speaking of that, Zell doesn't exist anymore, does it? No, it doesn't, sadly. Um, so I left um, because I had hit it so hard that I kind of, I just kind of got burned out. Um, I was basically a one woman show, as you know, like I recruited you and some other freelancers to write doing it all. And I just got tired and burned out and, um, you know, wanted to move back to my home state of Massachusetts. And then they kept it up a little bit, um, you know, after I left, but then they kind of moved it, morphed it back into the main runner's world product. Um, So yeah, kind of sad (laughs) because it was like my baby. Oh, I totally understand all about bittersweet endings for our babies. (laughs) I'm going through one myself right now. I know it. It kills me because I just know how much you pour into just not just a business, but like you live the same way I live, which is like you are full tilt boogie, right? You, if you're in, you're all in. And I was the same way. And so it's like so hard. Well, and it begs the question, like, what do you do with that passion and that drive when you realize you need to make that change? You know, for you, you actually hit a point of burnout. And I would say I've hit that point a few times over the past, like maybe five years or so. Um, but you know, did you have the next thing already at your fingertips or were you like, oh gosh, I'm finding myself in new uncharted waters? Yeah. I tend to not ever have something lined up, (laughs) even though I'm like totally OCD and type A. Um, and I like to be organized and I like to have my next thing planned, but generally speaking, when it comes to my career, especially I have learned slowly and painfully over the years that I need to just keep following my heart and my gut and my passion. And that is actually what's going to lead me to the next thing. Like if you told me when I was an obituary writer that I would be a digital editor 
at one of the major running publications in the country, I would have laughed at you because I was like, I'm just writing about dead people. You know, I mean, like I am literally writing about people that were buried. Um, so, you know, that's something I never could have predicted either. Oh, I mean, I love this concept too, because we all say like, really what we need to do is tap into ourselves and, and, you know, go deep and do the introspection and the work to really listen to our guts and our hearts and find the passion. But how do we do that? You know, it's oh, easy it's to terrifying. say that, right? Yeah. It's terrifying, like you said. And I will honestly say that one of the tools I use to clear my head and get deep into the gut is running or maybe not always running because my body's getting older. I'm doing other things, but movement. Movement in a way that is maybe almost in a form of meditation where your mind can truly clear, right? I don't know. What do you think? Has running been part of your uh, a tool in your tool shed during these times? Absolutely. I mean, anytime I've had a big problem or even right now, like I'm, you know, searching for a job. I'm without a job right now and it's scary. And, you know, I'm thinking about all the bills we need to pay and all the things we have to do. But I've reminded myself that like every day, even if I don't want to, I need to give myself that time and go on that run because it's how I work out all the knots in my brain. And it's really the one time of day that everything kind of unravels and unties itself. And sometimes it's subconscious and sometimes it's very conscious where I'm like actively thinking through a problem. Um, but that's also why like I love long distance running because I have two hours to kind of like let my brain marinate on whatever it needs to. And then I come back and even if I don't have it completely figured out, I'm more calm about it and I can kind of go, okay, let's, let's tackle one thing at a time. You know, this uh, podcast is going to have a lot to do with origins. Um, we're going to like slowly tiptoe our way back to the very beginning origin. I'm not talking Adam and Eve, you know, but like, um, but on the way to your origin, let's talk about your origin and running because you said, you know, you, you came to this job at runner's world because you already were a runner. How did you find sports and running? Was it something you were always doing as a kid? And, and what about it spoke to you? So I was very athletic as a kid. So I was the kid who I was a figure skater. I was a rower. I basically, I played field hockey. I basically did everything but just running, right, as a singular sport. And when my son was born, that was when I really became focused on like, this is my sport. This is my thing. Because truthfully, this is no joke. It was the only time, Nicole, I could get him to sleep was if I took him in the jogging stroller and I was like, I'm just going to do 25 minutes of running or walking or whatever it is. Um, and at that point I had been a rower and like, you can't, you can't go jump in a, in a cruise shell with seven other people when you're a mom with a newborn, you know, you just can't do it. So I really started running and that's when it was like, you know, my son, as he got older, was still in jogging stroller with me and he would cheer me up hills and, you know, things like that. So I really um, used it as like, this is my, not only me time, but it's my time that like my son can see me doing something that I think is fun and makes me feel good. 
So, um, did you have a pregnant, like a, maybe talk a little bit about how you started running maybe through your pregnancy, then you had your baby and you were able to pick it up because that's actually a pretty hot topic for women is like, when can I run again? How should I run again? And a lot of people are worried about either overdoing it or not doing enough and losing their fitness and all that. Yeah. I mean, it was really hard for me. I am a, for anybody who can't, you know, hasn't seen me, I'm very petite. I'm five feet. Exactly. I'm very small. And my son was 22 inches long when he was born. So he was, I was just like huge. He was all leg. Um, So I was incredibly uncomfortable. So my running through my pregnancy was more like a, I call it my dead man shuffle because that's literally like how slow and shuffly I could barely lift my feet some days. Like it was, I had heartburn, you name it. It was like, oh, um, but then once he was born, basically I was back out there. I didn't want to be one of those moms who was like terrified to go anywhere by herself with, with a newborn because I'm like a fiercely independent person. So the first week that he was home, I found a mom's group and I was like, nope, this is what I'm doing. I'm getting him in the car and I am going there. And I was like paranoid. I would be like lost or not know where to go. And so I brought the jogging stroller with me and it was like, I'm going to run walk until this mom group starts and figure out a way to just like feel normal again. Um, And so then, then, then it turned into like a bunch of moms in the mom's group and I would like walk or slow jog um, with our, with our babies. So this, it never really ended for you. Like you didn't have this big, you know, break. And it's really interesting to me because I know that you have said this before, you're an all in kind of person when you make decisions on things, whether it's careers or maybe becoming a mother, you know, or whatever, you are all in and you also have a tendency to keep going until things are perfect. (laughs) And so is, you know, this pressure to be perfect all the time, is that something that, you know, athletics or sport or movement helped you grapple with? Yeah. I mean, so my background, obviously, um, that were kind of like elephant in the room is that I was the first in vitro or IVF baby in the United States. So essentially real quick boilerplate is like they take the sperm and the egg and they fertilize it outside of the woman in a Petri dish. Once it's fertilized, they put it back inside the woman's womb and you have a baby, you know, nine months later, just like everybody else. But back when I was born, it was very controversial and it had never been done in the U S before. And so from a very young age, I was extremely aware that if I didn't come out just right, quote unquote, or normal or perfect, that there could have been serious setbacks for this technology in the country. And so as a little kid, you internalize that as like, you have to speak perfectly. You have to say the right thing. You have to look the part. You have to be on all the time. Um, And that's actually one of the reasons I started doing sports because I'm actually not athletic. Like I am 
a total klutz. <laughs> My husband will tell you, like the amount of dishes and glasses I have broken in our house um, and doing something day after day that I inherently am terrible at makes me feel like I'm growing as a person, right? So that I go out the door every day and I know that like, I will probably never run a four hour marathon. I'm like a five and a half hour marathon kind of person, but I go out there and I do it because I love it, not because I'm good at it. And I don't go out running to get necessarily better at it. I go out to get better at the practice of sucking at something. Does that make sense? Totally. I mean, a couple of things are coming to mind. Like first, that's just so much pressure to oh. grow up with. Like I can only imagine you like a little pressure cooker ready to blow. And the, the other thing is this idea of finding freedom from that pressure in embracing imperfection. Exactly. And how cool is that? That's so liberating. Yeah. Um, I just, I just wanted to find something that other people had no control over that was completely up to me. And running was that thing. It was like, no, I'm deciding which path we're going down, how fast I'm going, how slow I'm going. If I'm going up a hill, if I decide to walk, I'm in charge of all of it. Nobody else is in charge of it. Wow. I love that. Um, I think a lot of us grapple with trying to actually let go of trying to have control over things. And you're almost, it's like, you're kind of coming at this from the opposite angle. So you're looking <laughs> for positive outlets to control because let's face it, they could also be called coping mechanisms or whatever. And a lot of times they turn into things like eating disorders or exercise addiction or drinking problems or whatnot. So have you ever towed that line, like with your athletics and running or anything else where you're like, oh, this is not a good coping. I've gone overboard on the control side. Yeah. I mean, with, with my career, any, any job I've ever had, I kind of go, you know, complete, like I am a workaholic constantly trying to do better, um, find another way, be more creative. I mean, you name it. And so then to, to then have the counterbalance of that every day of running and, and reminding myself like, no, the point of this exercise is to go out and have no idea and to only, um, you know, be in the moment enough to make the decisions that are in front of you. Like, are you going left or right? You're not thinking three miles ahead. Like, well, when I come to the stoplight, I'm going to turn left and then I'm going to go down the hill and I don't even get that far. It's like, I literally am like one foot, other foot and, you know, coming to any decision I have to immediately in the moment. Wow. That's so freeing. Again, it's liberating that you don't have to clutter your mind in those moments. And I love this. And I love that running has been that outlet for you. Um, you know, you mentioned being a maybe you could term it as a workaholic or a work obsessed or a work centric or work to live kind of person. Um, how, let's talk about your career right now, because you, you said at the beginning, you're in another transitionary phase. You're not sure how the bills are going to get paid. What's going on there? So I was working for a nonprofit, which thanks COVID most nonprofits are just like, 
having the hardest time ever, right? Um, so even though I was pulling in money, you know, just feasibly, it wasn't, I wasn't going to be able to continue working there for this organization. Um, so, which is really sad because I'm, I really love helping people and, you know, finding a way to make a fulfilling impact on the world. Um, but the silver lining to that after I cried my eyes out and <laughs> was really upset was, you know, I sat down in the living room with my husband and I said, you know, the one thing that I have now is time. I have all of this time that I was giving to other organizations, you know, other than my running, I was really giving most of my day to a company or a manager or a boss or a job. And I kind of sat there and did a gut check with him. And I was like, you know, I have this weird perspective of being the first of something in the, you know, in this, in the United States and 15th in the world. And that has allowed me to learn so many things and talk to so many amazing people that now I actually have the time to like sit back and, and look at that and appreciate it. And maybe that's how I can help people because I really felt strongly, like I really still want to be able to help people. Um, so I don't know where it's going, but I started my own podcast. Um, and you know, it's all about fertility and you know, what that journey looks like for people. Um, not necessarily even going through IVF, like a part of a fertility journey can mean deciding that you don't want to have children um, and living a child-free lifestyle. And, you know, I think that's all part of a conversation that, that people um, are interested in as well. And so I don't know where I'll end up, but I know that like on a daily basis for the first time in years, I feel like I'm feeding myself. You know, I feel like I'm feeding my soul. Oh, that's something that's so important right now because of this crazy world chaos that we're in on all levels, um, feeding your soul. If, if you could step back and end your day and say, you know, I fed my soul today. I think that would be a really damn good day for most people. And um, I applaud you for taking the big leap of faith without knowing when the money's coming in, how it's going to come in, how the future career looks as you were speaking, I was like, you're a fertility journey guide, sounding board, um, thought leader. I don't know, but you're there. It's about the fertility journey, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And just hearing, you know, inherently, like I was a journalist, right? So I love to tell other people's stories. And I think that that's what makes us human is just being able to listen to somebody else's story and get whatever little nugget or piece you can get out of it. So even if you don't relate at all to their situation, you can relate to how they're feeling or, you know, the emotion that they have behind whatever they're going through. Because really, we all know happiness. We all know sadness. We all know fear. We all know anxiety. And so every human experience really centers around those emotions. And that's what I think is so interesting is like fertility is sometimes an incredibly lonely journey, especially if you're struggling to have a family. Um, and the thing is like, you're actually not alone because so many people have stories that have that peace in it. Um, 
So I just wanted to like explore that more. Well, and it seems almost ironic to me because if we go all the way back now to your origin, you were alone. You were the first, you know, there's, you can only be the first once, like no one else can be the first in our country to be the first IVF in vitro baby. And, um, you were it. And I can only imagine how this shaped your life from day one, basically. So let's talk about it. Let's talk about why your parents um, decided to go down this road, which was obviously like experimental at the time and probably maybe even considered dangerous. I don't know. Yeah. I mean, it was really controversial um, to the fact of like, there was only one other person born the way I was born in the world. And it was three years ahead of me. So I was three years after the first in the world. Um, so I was the first in the US. But my parents had started exploring like adoption and things like that. Cause this was, you know, 1980 something, 80, I was born in 81 December. And my mother had three eptopic pregnancies, which basically means like she had her tubes blew up. So kind of a problem. If you don't have tubes, how are you going to have a baby? Right. That's where like the magic happens. And so her OBGYN said, well, I don't really know too much about this, but I just came back from a conference on this thing called IVF and it's not being done here yet, but here's a brochure, go read about it. And so my parents always joke that like naively they looked at the thing and applied to this program in Virginia and the doctors were like well other than the fact that you've had two little pregnancies like you're completely healthy when can you get here and people don't realize like this was such a big deal because IVF was actually illegal in the state of Massachusetts where I live and where my parents were were living that they had to travel back and forth to Virginia for these treatments. And to top it off, this was the first group of people going through these trials and medications and procedures in the US. So my parents actually had no idea if they were going to be successful or not. And they had no idea within their little group of 10 people also trying this, if like, you know, Joe and Susie Smith were going to have a baby, but not my parents. Um, so when they found out they were pregnant, you know, they were like, oh, well, that's great. But it, they kind of like naively had no real like idea of what this truly meant until they were like, well, so we blocked off a whole wing of the hospital for you. And the, you know, parking lot was covered in press trucks. They released a false identity of my dad so he could come and go in the hospital without being recognized by the press. I mean, this was like a big, <laughs> crazy thing. Oh, my Lord. Okay, so let's go back to the, <laughs> the concept that it was illegal. So why was that? Was that um, like a human rights thing? Was this in like you're tampering with creating human life or something? And why was it legal in some states? I'm confused. So it had never been tried in the U.S. before. Um, so first of all, any unknown technology, right? Everybody is skeptical and scared of anything that's never been tried before. Um, secondly, 
there were certain states that had decided like this is this is playing god this is tampering with like mother nature we don't agree with this um and you know there were columns after columns which i always found funny as a journalist later in life of like you know we don't want a bunch of franken babies roaming the world um and yeah, I Franken mean, it, babies. Okay, that's hilarious. Because yeah. I mean, in today's world, do you feel like there's still a stigma? Um, I mean, not so much. I mean, there's like eight million IVF babies in the world now, um, and which makes me feel old because I feel like I'm their older sister in a weird kind of way. Um, but you know, it's just one of those things that I think the stigma comes around not being able to have a family the way you anticipate having a family, no matter if it's you go through IVF or not, right? It's, you know, there's still, I get questions all the time of like, how do I tell my child they're adopted? Or how do I tell them that like, you know, somebody was a surrogate for us or whatever the case may be. Um, so I guess if we put ourselves in your mom and dad's shoes, especially in your mom's shoes, you know, there's feelings that get really tied up in our ability to conceive a baby, right? We start to feel like we failed if we can't and, you know, we try harder and it can break up marriages and relationships because you're, you've just spent your whole life consumed or the last many years consumed with trying to do this. Um, did your mom fall into that category or was she a little more, well, I guess she didn't know that this was even an option, but so she it was, didn't yeah. Know, yeah, she didn't know it was an option um, originally. And then she always says that, you know, they were so young, right? So they were, when my mother had me, she was 28, which is actually exactly how old I was when I had my son as well. Um, and so she just said like, looking back now and knowing what she knows now, she is so grateful that she kind of, you know, claims she was a little bit clueless about like what this all meant. Um, because she figured the worst that could happen was like, they try and, you know, she had been told by the doctors anyway, like, you're not going to have a baby of your own. So she was like, well, if I try and I still don't have a baby of my own, then we'll just keep pursuing these other paths. And that's all she thought about. Um, it wasn't like she was expecting that this was going to be successful, which is, you know, different now because now there's such a high success rate with IVF that I think people go in thinking like, this is, this is my solution. And the crazy thing is it, sometimes it does, you know, IVF doesn't work for, for some people. Well, not only to mention you know, not only that, but it costs a lot of money. And so there's definitely, I'm not actually versed on this. I don't know if there are organizations that help people with different socioeconomic means, but I would say that it probably uh, is sort of biased towards people who make a lot of money. So if you want to have a kid and you don't have any money to spend on it, and this is your path, you can't take this path. Right. There are organizations that will do grants and things like that. And um, if you live, luckily, if you are lucky to live in an insurance mandate state, right, where they have to, by law, cover fertility treatments, then, you know, the cost can be lessened. There's still 
pretty expensive, um, but not nearly as bad as if it was all out of pocket. Um, but again, like we're still in this weird place where it's not covered by everybody, um, you know, and it's just, it took years for fertility, infertility to be considered a disease. Um, so I didn't yeah. realize that that's, um, it's, it's labeled that for medical purposes. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And so is it for female and male, you know, like, yes, there, there is male factor infertility. So you can have, um, male factor infertility is, is a disease. Um, there's also something called unknown fertility, you know, issues, which essentially means like, well, what, everything points to like, you should be able to have a, a child, the, nor the normal quote unquote way. But for some reason, it's just not working. Um, so there's a lot of like different designations of various, you know, things that aren't operating the way we assume they should operate. You're right. And you know, I do think there still is stigma, at least for the women who feel my women friends and maybe the men too, I just haven't talked to many <laughs> who feel like they haven't, they failed at this, um, trying to naturally have a child. And I have at least one or more friends who say they've had a six figure baby. You know, I okay. mean, when you're spending a hundred thousand dollars or more on treatments that you, I can almost see it like an addiction. You're like one more time. <laughs> Let's throw another 10 grand down, you know, like it's definitely, you're playing with fire. It's so, it's got to be devastatingly hard. Absolutely. Yeah. My father jokes that when I was born, he could have bought a brand new Ferrari every year for 10 years or had me like that's, I mean, and this was back in the eighties, right? Um, and so it's gotten slightly better and slightly worse depending on, you know, where you are. Wow. And what kind of pressure does that put on you? You're like, man, I got to perform better than a, you know, high-end sports car. Um, I actually was hoping it would be free because it was uh, experimental, but apparently it wasn't. <laughs> I mean, they still had hospital stays and blood draws and you name it. And they were, you know, flying back and forth to Virginia every month. And then the last month, of my mother's pregnancy. Um, they rented a condo to stay down there just to be safe um, and make sure if anything happened, they could get immediately to a hospital. So, I mean, there's all sorts of crazy expenses that, you know, people can't even fathom at this point. So, so you come out and you are a healthy, albeit very small baby, right? Yeah, I was only five pounds, 12 ounces. And ultrasound in the 80s was terrible at best. So they actually didn't know if I was going to come out healthy or not. And my parents' doctor um, at the time had prepared a statement that was in his pocket that basically none of us in, in our little family circle, none of us know exactly what it said because he ripped it up immediately that day after I was fine. Um, but basically it was talking about like a terrible day for, you know, reproductive technologies and, you know, whatever, um, which to have that knowledge about yourself is like, Oh God. <laughs> oh my gosh. They were preparing. They Holy. were definitely preparing for the worst. Oh, wow. Okay. 
but they got the best and the world got the best because we got you. Um, <laughs> so you come out and it, it, did the media circus like blow up even bigger? Yeah. So essentially, um, before I was born, there were photos taken under a Nikon microscope of me at three cells old. So like this was, um, you know, hyped before I was even out of the womb. And then once I was actually born, um, there was even more, you know, media craziness. And essentially, like, you know, my parents had gone to Virginia to have me. And uh, my first press conference was at three, three days, three days old. Like, literally, my, par my parents came out with a three day old in front of all these reporters with mics and stuff to say, like, yep, here she is. She's normal. Like, she's just like everybody else, you know, every other baby. That kind of sounds like you with your seven day old son getting out in the world. Definitely <laughs> genetics at play here. So, um, so you were healthy. You, your, your family was in the spotlight from kind of day one. Did it change anything in your, maybe your parents' relationship or the way that they chose to live their life? I mean, I think they were very smart in the fact that, um, you know, we had a lot of media approach us, like National Enquirer sent my mom a dozen roses and a proposal for like the rights to my story till I was 18. And my mother smartly wrote back, thank you so much for the roses and like ignored the business proposal of things. Um, so they always approached, um, you know, talking to the press as something that if it was educational, they would do it. So I never went on Donahue or Oprah or things like that. Um, but I did go on like the Today Show or Good Morning America. Um, there was a Nova documentary of my birth um, by a British film crew, you know, while I was being born, they were in the delivery room with my, my parents. Um, so they, I think, you know, they probably had a discussion about how, how much of a lack of privacy do we want? Um, and then as soon as they got home with me to their brand new house, which didn't even have like proper heat at the time, cause it was like blizzard in Massachusetts. Um, you know, the family, a, a cousin of my mother's came out the front door and he was a lawyer and basically said on behalf of the family, like they want to enjoy their, their newborn baby. So you all can go home cause they're not coming out again today. Thanks. <laughs> so. You know, I love those gatekeepers. You got to yeah, have your crew. People. Yeah. You got to have your, your people, your posse. Um, so you grew up, I'm assuming with this knowledge, with this being talked about openly, it wasn't like you had to be sat down at some age and said, now let us tell you, this is how you were born or were you? So it's so funny because I, I always joke when people ask me this question of like, especially when people say like, how do I tell my child that this is how they were born? It's a really hard question for me to answer because I've, I feel like I've just always known how I was born. Um, but when I was very young, you know, my parents basically answered the question when I was like three or four as like, well, mommy and daddy couldn't have you without the help of some very special doctors. And until you're like six or seven, like that's a fine answer. Like you don't ask more questions than that. And then when I was actually seven, my parents' doctors that made this procedure possible actually sat me down in a room 
where they screened the Nova documentary of my birth. So I have one expert on one side and the other expert on the other side, and they're commentating this whole documentary of my own birth, which is like really weird right? <laughs> to be like a little kid. And that's when I actually learned like the boilerplate thing that I said at the top of your show of like a sperm and an egg is fertilized outside the womb. And once it's fertilized, it's, you know, put back in the mother's womb and nine months later, there's a baby. Like I, I learned that little elevator pitch at age seven from doctors. Um, so, you know, it's, it's weird that that's how I vividly remember that. Um, but I also was the kid that like, you know, when they split the boys and the girls up for the sex talk in school, in public school, um, we had that in fourth grade and the school nurse was going through like the birds and the bees and how babies are made and whatever. And I raised my hand and was like, actually, not everybody has babies that way. <laughs> Did they like, were they totally caught off guard? Oh my God, I, I'm 99% positive that an email or letter went home saying, we're so sorry, we did not plan for your children to learn about this, this way. <laughs> wow, that is so crazy and so funny. Um, but it also says something about you and your confidence as a young girl. And I love that. Did you actually know that, you know, about sex at that point or were you learning that at the same time as everyone else? No, I mean, I kind of had to learn all that stuff super early, right? Because if you're not born the same way as 99% of your friends, that means you have to learn how 99% of your friends were born, right? So like right. I learned all of those things very young, um, which, you know, is also interesting because all of my friends have these weird taboos about talking about their own body parts and things that I just did not have. And even my son, you know, I used from the day he was born, I used the proper terminology for all of his genitalia, all, you know, I didn't have nicknames or anything like that. Like I, because I grew up learning like, nope, this is this part and this is, and this is, we're going to call it what it is. So. Oh my gosh. We have to segue here for a minute because my daughter is eight. Okay. Uh -huh. And okay. So she was watching this Teen Titans movie like six months ago. And all of a sudden she runs into where I was in the kitchen. She goes, Hey mom, how are babies made? And I was like, what? Like it was random. It was coming out of nowhere. Well, I later found out. So people listening, if you let your kids watch Teen Titans movie, be ready because after the closing credits, one of the little characters, Robin, pops his head out on the screens and goes, hey kids, ask your parents where babies come from. Like literally they thought it was a hilarious joke, which it kind of is, but it's also like, oh my God. And so many parents have probably been put on the spot like me. So I got on Facebook and I was like, okay, she's starting to ask stuff what do I do? And all these people were like, actually, I got recommended a great um, book, a series called It's Not the Stork. Have you heard of those? Yeah, it's a great series. Oh, it's awesome. And we've gotten partway through. We're actually, I think we're on the page of the men's um, body development series. And it's just hilarious. But, you know, it's so, it's such a, 
a really cool time to be able to talk to your kids openly about this stuff. And when they're really young, it's very literal. There's no hormones. There's no sex drive involved. It doesn't have to do with that. It's more just like this happens and this happens and we're not quite there, but I think we need to probably get there soon. And the other point of all this is the other tricky part is when their friends know, but they don't. So at some point she's either going to hear it from somebody else or she's going to hear it from me. Right? Yeah, absolutely. That's, that's the part that I think my parents were like, we don't want her to wonder um, about, you know, how she was born versus her friends or whatever. So we're going to head it off at the pass as early as possible and tell her like in very black and white logistical terms, like this is how it happened. This is how it works. So can we talk about the concept of being special versus being different and what how that made you feel as a kid? Yeah. I mean, I grew up, actually the reason I became a journalist is because I got so mad at being asked the question, do you feel special? I hate that question. Like I literally became a journalist because I was like, I can ask better questions than these people. (laughs) And I just got mad about it. Um, And I always kind of answered back in a very flip way, which was like, I don't know if I'm special because I have been this way my entire life. Like, how am I supposed to know if I'm any different from anybody else than because I've always felt this way. Like I was very (laughs) belligerent almost about it. Um, And so while I was conceived differently, um, you know, it was always made apparent to me that like, I was not special because I was born this way. I was special to my parents because I was theirs. And that was the difference. It was like, you, it doesn't matter how you got here, right? It matters that you're here now. So as you've grown up, very special, just kidding. Um, (laughs) With all of this knowledge and it shaped a little bit of who you are just hearing the way that you had to have a different, maybe more open form of communication with your parents than many of us did. And you had to start navigate privacy issues and, you know, all of those things as you got older. Um, what did you learn? What are you taking away from this now in your glory days? I think you're almost 40, aren't you? Yeah. Two years. Two years, here I come. Yeah, <laughs> live it up. Um, you know, what What have you taken that you can truly kind of compact down into like little nugget of wisdom here? And this is not your final nugget. This is just one thing that has to do with this experience in your life. I think the biggest takeaway for me is that I had to learn super young in kind of a painful way that it really doesn't matter what other people think. It really doesn't matter. Like there have been so many people that have called me a child of the devil there. I've gotten hate mail growing up. I mean, you name it. Um, and for a really long time, it consumed me. Like I, like I said, needed to be perfect, needed to do everything just right. Um, 
you know, I pushed myself so hard to get good grades, even though I'm really terrible at math, like just so many, so many things. And I learned so young that like, it doesn't matter. You have to be comfortable with yourself. And if that makes other people uncomfortable, that's on them. That's not on you. And that I think is the biggest thing. And even talking with my son, who's um, turned 10 yesterday, um, you know, I tell him the same thing. I'm like, buddy, it doesn't matter if they're uncomfortable. You can be empathetic to that and say, gee, I'm really sorry that you're uncomfortable. But I said, you cannot apologize for who you are and what you think. And that is so important. There's a lot of power in those words. I think a lot of people are probably pausing and rewinding and taking that in. I, sh I certainly am. I wrote it all down. Um, there is, you know, this idea too of an identity that you create for yourself. And, and, and when you label yourself a certain thing and it does make people act uncomfortable around you. I love this perspective that that is not your responsibility to take on. That's totally. their deal. That's their issue to work on. And I'll tell you a time that comes up for me is when I talk about being sober. Mm, There's yep. certain people who don't know how to have more of a conversation about it possibly are often grappling with something themselves that they're not comfortable with and they're thinking, oh my gosh, she's going to judge me, right? Weird, huh? How judgment maybe goes hand in hand with that discomfort. It's totally true. So my husband is actually coming up on two years sober um, next week. And one of the things that our friends have, you know, had to figure out how to deal with is like, how do they interact with him now? And I always chuckle at that because I'm like, he is the same damn person. No differently. No different, but he just isn't drinking. Like that's literally, or he's drinking, but it's water, you know? I mean, so I think, especially with the identity piece, like for me, a major reason, like I said, about why I became a journalist was a I get I got pissed off at the questions I was being asked because I felt like they were just totally uneducated and you know weren't taking into account how I might feel being asked something like that but also I like figured out super young like oh well it's a conflict of interest for me to be in the news and also write the news so I'll just like write the news and then nobody can write about me that was literally my thinking I I tell everybody I hid in plain sight. I created my own identity, Elizabeth Carr, journalist. And for so long, that is what I built around me. And I worked my butt off to become a super young editor, like all these high achieving things that most people are like, wow, that's so great. And I'm like, yeah, but like looking back, I kind of created it from a really bad place of like trying to hide who I actually am, which is now why I'm like, to the point where like, yes, I was the first IVF baby and I do have this weird and wacky life and I do have this unique perspective, but it is not the only thing. I am not going to pigeonhole myself. I'm also a mom and a wife and a runner and all of these other little pieces 
Um, but I think so many people get focused on like that thing that they're known for, right? Like you are so much more than skirt sports. I mean, I knew from, from the, from the get go when I met you, how tenacious you were and what an incredible writer you are and just how thoughtful and caring and empathetic you are. And that has almost nothing to do with the fact that you were a CEO of a company. Like that is a sliver of why you became a CEO of a company, but it is not the end all be all. Let's just say this is super relevant for me right now to hear. Thank you. (laughs) But you're, you're right. You know, it's this journey of redefining ourselves throughout our life. And we, we like to give ourselves a label and we like to create an identity it helps us when we're communicating and talking to people. So if they're like, hey, who are you? What do you do? And I'm like, I'm compassionate. People be like, okay, that's weird. But for them, you know, for me to be like, um, I started a women's clothing company. Then they can relate to that and understand it. And have, but um, so this is a very difficult like process that we all go through. And when we go through these evolving identity shifts, and we continue to redefine different parts of our life blow up at different times. I mean, your last name used to be a different last name. Totally. You had yep. other, you, you've had other relationships along the way, yep. you know, I mean, are there any lessons or, or wisdom that you have that you've, you know, in hindsight that you've gained through the process of evolving even on the relationship front for you? Yeah. I mean, That's the crazy part, right? Is that nobody ever wants to go through and experience incredibly painful things. I mean, I went through a divorce, which was very hard. And he was my high school sweetheart. And like, I thought we'd be together forever. And, you know, and we had a son and, you know, I mean, it was awful, right? I mean, nobody wants to do that. But just like with running, you know, I I think of so many things in life as, as how I, equate them to running. And just like with running, like, you know, that every step of a marathon is going to be hard at no point. Even when you talk to elite runners at the top end of their sport, at no point is a marathon quote unquote easy. It is not a, you know, bike ride in the park. It is hard. And every step is hard fought. And you know that eventually you will get to that finish line. You just can't give up and you know that you're going to get there. And so I just kept reminding myself, like I am going through something incredibly hard and incredibly painful right now, but there's a reason and something to learn from it. And so if I make the same mistake twice, then I, I didn't learn it yet. You know, that's kind of like, I don't want to say everything happens for a reason. Cause I think that's kind of like a little bit of a throwaway, but I do think like you go through something as many times as necessary until you learn. Um, and, and that's kind of where I am now. It's like, okay, you know, I, I clearly like have something else to say here and to put forth in the world and it wasn't going to get port- put forth in the prior jobs that I had. Wow. Oh, love that. Really cool takeaway. If I make the same mistake twice, I didn't learn what I needed to yet. Wow. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's a that's a really cool takeaway. And you're right, we can't beat ourselves up if we keep making the same mistake until that thing clicks for us. Right. So I mean, it's it's so funny because I just like really quickly like my son loves to um, cook. Like he is obsessed with Aron Sanchez on the Food Network and wants to like become America's next great chef. And so he's learning to cook. And the other day we made brownies and he thought he did everything right. And the brownies came out. (laughs) Nicole, I had to throw the pan away. I couldn't get them out of the pan and they turned into like spackle. I mean, (laughs) they were so bad. They were so bad. But he had this like light bulb moment, right? Where he was like, okay, well, I need to make another batch because I need to figure out what I did wrong. He didn't just say, screw it. I'm not a good chef. I can't make these brownies. He said, I'm going to make another batch to figure out what I did wrong. And I was like, why can't adults be like that? Like, I love your kid. Yes. That's the way you're supposed to look at stuff. Yes. He reminds me of that every day. He reminds me of that every single day. It kind of reminds me of like your point at the beginning that the Zell site on runner's world was not about running through the lens of everyday life. It was about life through the lens of running. I'm imagining life through the lens of a 10 year old, you know, like it's, it's, it's more freeing, right? We're not shackled by existing beliefs. We're forming them. (laughs) So good job, mama. Keep forming a good, good, very good human being. Let's talk a little bit more about what you are doing today. So first of all, what we heard, we're kind of circling back to the beginning of our conversation. Um, you're not sure exactly what you're doing today, but right now you have started a podcast and you've got a few episodes up and they're really good. Um, okay. Maybe you can share a little more about the name of the pod, how people can find it, what you talk about, who you plan to interview, all that good stuff. Sure. So like I said, this podcast, it's called The First because I was the first. So it's a little bit cheeky, right? I'm not taking myself too seriously here. Um, Because when I was trying to come up with the name, I was like, well, what the hell am I? And I was like, well, I'm the first. It's an awesome name. I love it. It's brilliant. That's your new uh, brand. Yeah. So essentially, it's a mix of experts and people who have gone through a fertility journey as well as my personal story. So basically every other episode, you're just going to get a solo episode from me talking about my wacky life. Cause I don't know about you, but there aren't many 10 year old kids that I know that have spoken in front of the UN, but I did. So like, that's a solo episode, right? But then on the flip side, there are, there are also not many people who can pick up the phone and talk to a world renowned endocrinologist about infertility. Um, and so that's where like the fact that I was the first gives me access to people that I want more people to have access to and to be able to pick their brains and hear, you know, um, their personal, um, you know, how they became a doctor or some of the things that they're seeing in the industry. Um, and then there's also the mix of people that have gone through fertility, um, whether it ended in a successful pregnancy or adoption or a child-free life, I just wanted to share a wide variety of those stories that I've been hearing my entire life that just people, I think I took for granted that I've been hearing them my whole life, which is why I have a really open mind about 
creating a family and like the definition of a family is very broad in my world. Um, and for other people, it may be a lot more narrow. And so I wanted to just kind of share all of the different mechanisms that people take to have what they think of as a family. I love this. There are many people out there listening who are probably on one side of the journey or smack dab in the middle. And how nice to have a new resource out there. Can they also find you through a website? Yes. So they can go on my website and click on the little button that says podcast. I tried to make it as easy as possible. Went back to my web designer days, <laughs> built my own website. So it's ejordancar.com. And they can read a blog or they can listen to the podcast. The blog has a little bit of like extended behind the scenes um, commentary about the different podcast episodes. So like how I met the guests that I interview, um, you know, things like that. Um, and then the podcast is just straight up. You can just listen to me yammer on for, <laughs> I try to keep them short. I try to keep them like a half hour long or less. Um, yeah, I don't. I gave up on that because we got way too much to say. Um, I love it. So it's E Jordan Carr. That's with a C. Yeah. com. So get over there. We're going to check out your, your website. Everybody's going to subscribe to your podcast. It's great listening. They're short episodes, not like this, but this was great episode. Great listening too, obviously. So um, we're rolling down here towards our little finish line. So I'm going to end with the, the question I ask every guest who comes on the show. And that is, if you can leave our listeners with one final piece of advice, one little nugget to help them run their worlds in a bigger and better way, what would it be? I think the biggest piece of advice I can say is don't be afraid to go off the beaten path and to explore something that you're really not sure about, just to find out where it ends up. Because, you know, it might be terrible. But 99% of the time, every time I've taken a path down a trail that I haven't not known where it's going, I am greeted with the most beautiful view. And I think that if you can just approach every decision like that, it makes it, makes it a lot easier. Very enlightening and full circle on that point. Thanks so much for coming on today. It's been awesome to reconnect. So nice to see your face. I'm, I'm probably making people jealous because they don't get to see your face, but I get to see your face. It was very nice to see you and catch up. And, you know, we're both kind of in this, this place where we're just going to find out where it goes, right? I mean, Absolute. we're just uh, along for the ride. Absolutely. And it would be even better in person, but that'll happen again someday. Absolutely. You are amazing. Thank you so much. Thanks, Nicole. Okay, I am back. I am very excited about this conversation. I'm very excited about this time in life. There's so much going on. And I love this episode for myself personally, for this transition that I'm going through, because she hits on so many things that I think are important. They're really good reminders right now. Like, the idea of perfection is just a freaking idea and that we can find joy in imperfection and take away all that pressure. And I think that's a big thing we need to remember. We don't want to live with pressure because pressure turns into cortisol and cortisol turns into all kinds of crazy stuff in our bodies. 
So ban the cortisol. Um, I also love the idea of the fact that we all know this is true, that it really doesn't matter what other people think. But the second part of that is that if things make other people uncomfortable, that's on them. That is not on you. That is not on me. (laughs) Um, And then I love this other, I'm just quoting all kinds of things from our interview. If I make the same mistake twice, then I didn't learn what I needed to learn yet. You know, a lot of us, we beat ourselves up by making the same mistake twice, but there's a reason you made the same mistake twice. And finally, I'm just going to end my little awesome rant here. It's like a positive rant um, by saying that I love her nugget and I love one of, it's the same as the concept she led with, which is don't be afraid to try a new trail. You can just be bebopping along on your path, but when you see something out of your the corner of your eye that looks interesting, explore it. Because if you don't, you will someday want to double all the way back there to get to it. And how much easier would it have been if you could just freaking explore the thing when you first saw it? So that's where I'm going to leave you today. My life is in the middle of who knows what. Next week, I could be like, I, I don't know, maybe I'll have an entirely different career. Photographer, Nicole DeBoom, like creative uh, graphic designer. I don't know. I don't know what I'm going to do next. And that's what, you know, that's what's really cool about life. And what's really cool about this podcast is that it gives me hope that there are so many cool and unique possibilities out there and all I have to do is walk my own talk and uh, keep my mind open to new things because when you're open things come to you so that's where I'm going to leave you all today let's be open out there on our runs on our hikes on our walks in the gym lifting those heavy weights be open to the possibilities that are ahead all right On that note, you know what time it is. It's time to get out there and run this world. Have a great workout, and I'll see you next week.